Amen. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are indeed a faithful God. Even when we are faithless, Lord, often even when we're in rebellion and we're outside of your will and you remain so faithful to us, what a great and awesome God you are. Lord, we ask as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would speak. Lord, that you would be glorified, that our lives would be transformed. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 6. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. If you're new here this morning, uh, Revelation's in the very back of the book. So start at the back and find chapter 6. I had uh, the pleasure of spending the first couple days of this week down at the Senior Pastors Conference. I came back early to go to my son's graduation, but uh, just a refreshing time. And one of the things that I felt like the Lord really spoke to me about while I was there was the fact that we need to be an evangelistic church. Amen? And so my heart is, and hold me to this, that we are going to have an altar call at every service we have here. And the reason we are going to do that, amen, and the reason we are going to do that is if you bring somebody here, you can rest assured that they are going to hear the gospel and have an opportunity to be born again. Because you never, you know what, that person may come one time. And so we need to be faithful to that. And so at the end of every message, we're going to take a few moments. And so we can be praying for that each week, that God would open and soften the hearts of those who don't know him. And just know that every week you bring somebody here, they're going to hear the gospel and they're going to have an opportunity to receive Christ. Okay? So that's just something God's put on my heart to be faithful to. All right, Revelation chapter 6. Now, so far, as we've been talking about, this book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. We get to know Jesus better. In chapter 1, we saw his personage in heaven, his character, what he looks like in heaven, pretty powerful stuff. In chapters 2 and 3, we saw the letter to the seven churches. Again, what God thinks of the church, seven number of completeness, certainly looks at the, the church as a whole, areas where they were doing well and areas where they could do better. Chapters 4 and 5, we saw a glimpse into heaven. And we saw that the focus in heaven is what? Two weeks in a row. There we go. Somebody, come on now. By about the eighth week, you're going to go, throne, the throne of God. Amen? And certainly the one seated on the throne. As he enters into heaven, his focus is on the throne, before the throne, what's around the throne, who's seated on the throne. He doesn't talk about the golden streets or the pearly gates or anything else, because when we get to heaven, as awesome as all that stuff will be, our focus is going to be on the one who is seated on the throne. Amen? Then, after two chapters of a glimpse into heaven, we got to chapter six last week. And we saw the beginning of God's righteous judgment upon the earth. We talked about the fact last week that God suffers long, but he won't suffer always. You know, even as we go through this morning's text, what kept hitting me is the graciousness and the mercy of God. That he is so long-suffering, it is incredible. And that he is in control of everything, even in the midst of this righteous judgment that is going on, he is totally in control, his hand is on everything. And that just encourages me and hopefully encourages you that when we go through trials of life, it's good to know that God is in control. Amen? And it's good to know that even when things look out of control and things seem to be going sideways and the timing's not right and we don't understand, God understands. And God knows what he's doing. And that ought to bring us a great amount of peace. Amen? So last week, we looked at the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And that was some pretty gnarly stuff. Amen? And we talked about the fact that God 
was opening the seal of the scroll. Remember it said on the throne, he was the only one who could take the scroll out of the hands of the Father. And he began to open the scroll. The scroll is the what? Title deed to earth. Thank you. Okay, I'm, you know, I'm an old youth pastor. This is, pro, you know, this is interactive here. It makes me know you're not asleep. It's good stuff, okay? So it is the, it's the title deed to planet earth. And as he begins to open it up to reclaim the earth, right? God had created it perfect. It was a, it's fallen because of Adam and Eve. It wasn't God's, you know, God's ultimate plan is that we walk on the earth in perfection. And we'll see that during the millennial kingdom. But you know what? It fell because of the sinfulness of man. And now God is coming back. Satan is the prince of the power of the air now. And he, has, you know, he is the one who roams about the earth. And right, he's the one who has dominion over the earth at this moment, given to him by man. But when the Lord returns, he's going to take it back. And we're going to see what the world would be like with him ruling and reigning. But for him to do that, as I said last week, he has to get rid of the unruly tenants, right? He has to get rid of those who are rebellious, who refuse to repent. But yet, even the great tribulation, the seven-year period, is one last chance for people to get saved. And I do, as we'll talk about this morning, believe many will. And we talked about what those horses were last week. The first horse was the white horse of deception. That's the Antichrist or the beast who's going to come, and he's going to bring the answers from the world's perspective. And they're going to cry out to him, and they're going to join together. All the nations of the earth in their sovereignty are going to join together and raise him up as the world leader. The Jews are going to be mistaken. They're going to be duped, and they're going to think he is the Messiah. He's going to enter into a treaty with them and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so the first horse is the Antichrist. The second horse that came that we saw last week was war. See, that peace that he initially brings, and I believe it's going to be because of the rapture of the church. There's going to be mayhem in the world. The economy, everything is going to be a mess. And he's going to be the one that brings everyone back together. He along with the false prophet. And so he's going to bring everybody back together. And they're all going to be united under him. And he's going to be the one proclaiming peace. But as we know, three and a half years in, the abomination of desolation as described by Daniel takes place where he goes into the temple and he proclaims himself to be God and the Jews will recognize that they've been duped. And at that point, there's going to be war like we've never seen before. And so that temporary peace will not last. It's a false peace that will turn to war. The third horse that comes is famine. And what we talked about what they want and leaves them wanting. This false peace doesn't satisfy. You know, whatever the world offers you, you've got a hunger for more. It will never satisfy you. The only one who ever will is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that brings eternal peace. He's the bread of life, not the temporary bread that fades. And we talked about the famine, that it'll be a day's wages for basically a bun of bread. In today's terms, maybe 150 or $200, a laborman's wages, whatever he makes working all day to buy a little tiny bun of bread. That's what's going to happen during the, again, during the beginning, during these sealed judgments. The fourth seal is the pale horse, the horse of death. And we talked about last week that, that when that judgment comes, when that fourth seal is opened, that one-fourth of the world's population will die. And they will die from pestilence and famine and even wild beasts will, will, will come and attack. And so this is going to happen. Now, if that happened today, I talked about last week, the world's population is 6.8 billion. That would mean 1.7 billion people will die at the opening of this fourth seal. Now, as I said before, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it throughout this message, we won't be here for it. Amen, and aren't you glad? Remember in John chapter 4, he calls John up. 
Church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters. You never see the church mentioned again because during the great tribulation, I believe it's absolutely clear from scripture that we will be in heaven with the Lord as he is opening the seals, not down here facing his righteous judgment. So that brings us to this morning's text. We're going to pick up in verse 9. And I titled the message, Who is Able to Stand? And we're going to see two very different views of God's righteous judgment. You know, what does Maranatha mean? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? Basically, come quickly, Maranatha. Now, we say that because we want him to come back because we're excited about it. Amen? How does the world that doesn't believe in him, how are they going to feel about it? Not so much, right? And we're going to see those two very clear contrasts in this morning's text. First, we're going to see the heavenly cry of the martyred saints. They're in heaven, and they've been martyred during the tribulation, and they have a view of the righteous judgment of God and him you know, coming back to the earth and bringing an end to things. And their cry is, avenge us. They cry out, avenge us, Lord. So they're crying out to bring on God's righteous judgment. Then the second group we're going to see is the earthly cry of rebellious and unrepentant man. Instead of crying out to God, they're going to cry out to, instead of crying out to the creator, they're going to cry out to creation. And they literally cry out to the mountains. How foolish is that? They cry out to the mountains and say, fall on us and hide us. They want to be hidden from God. I truly believe that the greatest fear of mankind isn't death. Really, ultimately, it's facing Almighty God. And you know what? If you don't know God, you ought to be afraid. Amen? And even for us that know him, there's an awe and a reverence to that, isn't there? It's like, whoa. Nothing going to be heavier than that, but we can be excited about it because we know we can stand before him, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. So there's those crying out for God to bring his righteous judgment and those crying out to the mountains to hide them from God's holy wrath. And as I put on the notes there, our view of God's righteous judgment is based on what kind of relationship we have with him. So let's begin there in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 6. Who is able to stand? Who's able to stand before Almighty God? We're all going to be before him one day. We're all going to have to give account before Almighty God one day. And who is able to stand? And we'll first start by looking at the heavenly perspective on God's righteous judgment as the heavenly uh, cry of the martyred saints is avenge us. Look at verse 9. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, remember, he's got a scroll in his hand if you weren't here last week, and there are seven seals on it, and each time he, no one else can open it, because only he is worthy, and each time he opens a seal, he unrolls the scroll a little bit more, and something takes place. Be it the Antichrist coming to earth, war on the earth, famine on the earth, death on the earth, and now this fifth seal is being opened. And it says, I saw under the altar... The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Every other seal so far, the vision John has been given is of the earth. This time, when this seal is opened, his vision is in heaven. He's looking in heaven, and as this seal is opened, his attention is drawn to the saints who had been slain for standing for the truth of God's word. Those who had been martyred on earth. Remember martyr, martis, it means witness. And so to be a witness is what it ultimately means, but these were those who had been witnesses even unto death. And we've talked about the fact that the tabernacle is a model of heaven. 
And just as there is an altar in the tabernacle on the earth, there is an altar in heaven. Now, why is it there? I don't know if it's just a reminder for us of the sacrifice that has been paid. Just as our, the Lamb of God, you know, Jesus Christ, will walk in heaven, he'll be the only one who's scarred in heaven as the nail prints remain on his hands and his feet and his brow. But there's an altar in heaven. And as he looks, when this scroll is open, he sees those saints who are martyred. And notice where they are. It says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. The souls are under the altar. Now we need to know that from the word of God, the emphasis here is that their blood has been poured out because under the altar, in Leviticus chapter 4, it says, He shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar as a burnt offering. As the blood of the sacrifice was poured out on the bottom of the altar, so too the souls of those who were sacrificed for their testimony, for boldly proclaiming the gospel. So the blood of the sacrifice was poured out at the base of the altar, and there's where the, there were the souls of those who had been put to death. And what that tells us is this, that those who die, it's a sacrifice that they're offering unto the Lord. They're, sacri- they're giving a sacrifice of their lives. They're laying down their lives for him. I remember years ago talking to a young man, and we used to pass an offering in the youth group. And he said, Pastor, you know, when the offering plate comes by, I just want to put my whole self in the plate. You know, because he said, you know, I don't have any money to give. I just want to give him my life. And, you know, that's really ultimately what the Lord desires from us. Amen. And here, that's exactly what is happening. They have surrendered their lives completely to the Lord, even unto death. During the great tribulation, let me just make it very clear. It's going to be hard to be a Christian. Very hard. We have no idea. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Bible says, for the life of the animal soul is in his blood. And the blood is often represented as, be, as crying out for vengeance. In Genesis chapter 4, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So those who have been slain, going all the way back to Abel, their blood cries out for vengeance. Now, it's hard for us because we, we think of vengeance as a bad thing. And, and truly, it is. It's not our place to take vengeance, right? Amen? The Bible says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But there is a day coming when vengeance will take place. When God will avenge those who have died for their testimony. And so we're going to see that here are the souls of those in heaven who have died before faithfully standing for God, and we're going to see them begin to cry out that God would bring that vengeance. It says they were slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. And again, while this may be a reference to all the martyrs going back to Abel, in context, it most likely refers to those who will be martyred during the great tribulation. Again, slain not by the judgments of God. They're not going to die because hailstones fall on them. They're going to die because they're making a stand for God and the Antichrist and those who follow him will put them to death. And so these are the ones who have been slain for standing for the Lord. It says, of the Antichrist, we are told this in Revelation 13. 
And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given to him over all the kindreds and tongues and nations. So even after the church has been raptured, there will be those who are saved during the great tribulation. We know that's a fact. Among them, we're going to see 144,000. We'll see them next week. 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel will be saved. They'll be born again, believers in Christ, and they will be the a witnesses to him on the earth. We also know that the Lord is going to send, the Bible tells us, we'll get to this later, an angelic being who will go throughout the earth proclaiming the gospel. He also talks about the two witnesses. There's supposition about who that may be, Moses and Elijah possibly, right? Who will be then witness and testify, Moses being the law, Elijah being the uh, picture of the prophets. They will be those who will testify of the truth of Jesus Christ. And people used to mock the fact that the Bible says that they would die in the streets of Jerusalem and would raise from the dead and the whole world would see them. A hundred years ago, that sounded insane. But you know what? If someone raises from the dead, you think they might carry that on national television. We know for a fact that all the world will see them. So there's going to be witnessing going on during the tribulation. The church has been raptured. The church is in heaven. The Holy Spirit, in a sense, has been removed, but he's in the hearts of these people who have been saved, who go throughout the world witnessing and testifying of the grace of God. And then when people are saved, they're going to have to make a choice. Because as we know, those who aren't saved will have to take the mark of the beast. And the mark of the beast will be some likeness of him or something that represents him that they will have to take on their, on their right hand or their forehead or both. So they'll have this mark that shows that they have aligned themselves with the Antichrist. They've made the decision to align with him. So those who have not aligned with him will not have that mark. They will not be able to buy and sell. And there will be a target on them. It will be very obvious who the Christians are during the Great Tribulation. And as we know from the Bible, most of them won't survive long. Most of them will be put to death for their faith. So God still has a plan for the Jews, his chosen people, and I do believe, and again, Pastor Dave's opinion, I believe millions will be saved during this seven-year period. Who are some of the people that will be saved? I thought of this. Those who were taught or thought they were Christians until the day they got left behind. Do you think there might be a few people like that? There might be a few people, I hope none in this room, but there might be a few people who have been going to church your entire life, but you've never really had a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've been a religious person without a relationship. And let me tell you right now, religion will not get you into heaven. And if the rapture comes in your lifetime, and you show up here on a Sunday, and there's four people, our website is rapture-proof. So go to the website, and click on the book of Revelation, and start watching because you'll be living it. My prayer is that no, that happens to no one. There will be those who have been witnessed to, who have mocked the truth, who saw Christians as lunatics until the day they all disappeared just as they said they would. I mentioned I've been talking to a coworker, and we were talking about, it's interesting, when I first used to talk to him, he would always say to me, don't talk to me about the Bible, don't talk to me about God. And now he comes over to my house for dinner and we've become friends and he'll ask me, what are you teaching on next Sunday? And so I get to do the preview of the message over lunch with this guy who doesn't believe in God. And when I got to Revelation, he's like, oh, that just sounds crazy. 
And I said, well, it does. It may, it may to you. I said, but if you know God and you know his plan, it's not crazy at all. And it's going to be one last opportunity for you, Mark, to be saved. I said, my prayer is you don't wait that long because it's going to be a lot harder to be a Christian then than it is now. Those who want to romanticize being a tribulation saint, uh, not so much. Amen? Far better to be in heaven. But there will be those who are left behind. There will be those who you have witnessed to, and that will be the very thing, if he comes in our lifetime, and I believe he will, that will be the very thing that will finally wake them up to the fact that the word of God is true. Imagine how many people are going to be trying to dig up some Bibles right about then. Where's my Bible? Somebody gave me a Bible once. Where's that tape somebody gave me on the end times? I mean, I'd sell everything I have to find that tape. Where is it? Looking up websites. It is a fact that the Calvary Chapel websites, they they tell us they're rapture proof. They're set to go without anybody manning them. So praise God for that. So becoming a Christian during this seven-year period will come with a heavy price tag. Those who refuse to take the mark of the beast, again, will not be able to buy and sell and will eventually be put to death or martyred. Guys, Christians, we are marked, but we are marked by the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And Satan always tries to copy the Lord. And so he is going to try to mark his, and he's going to mark his people, those who have aligned with him, the Antichrist will, by making them take the mark of the beast. Now you need to understand something. According to the Bible, those who take the mark of the beast have made their decision. They have aligned with Satan and it's game over. That's heavy, isn't it? They will, so that's why, you know, I hear, I hear people say, I don't want to get that computer chip. That might be the mark. Of, guys, you're not going to be tricked into taking the mark of the beast. It's going to be a conscious decision. And I believe that we, if you're born again right now, you're never going to have to worry about it because you'll be in heaven when it happens. Okay? So unbelievers will be marked with the likeness of the beast on their right hands or their foreheads. And again, those who take the mark of the beast can never be saved. So during the tribulation, it will be easy to determine whose side you're on. It's those who refuse to take the mark of the beast, who are marked by the Holy Spirit, who will be martyred for the testimony of that they hold. And again, while we won't be here for the great tribulation, we must all be prepared for persecution. Sometimes you preach on persecution as a pastor in America, and it's kind of a joke. Because we really have no clue. We just have no idea. How many of you in this room have ever been taken out and beaten because of your faith and your stand for God? That would be nobody. If we did that in certain countries... Every, virtually every hand would go up. So because there's no persecution here, doesn't mean there isn't persecution in the world. But we need to be prepared to stand for the Lord to the point, even unto suffering, even suffering unto death. And while we don't really experience much of the way of persecution in the U.S., there are people all over the world who do. If we're able to stand in the face of persecution, God's word must be deep, take deep root in our lives. Here's what I have found when I go to places where people do face persecution. They are people who have a very intimate relationship with God, and God's word is, is deep in their hearts. Matthew 13 says, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So my question for all of us is, do we have any depth in our walk with the Lord? Are we merely shallow or surface Christians in our walks, in the depth of our faith? 
Guys, there's a reason why we go through trials, and I believe it's to deepen our faith and broaden our character. It's, that, it's through that that God allows us to grow spiritually, to stand for God when it doesn't make sense from a physical perspective. And that's what has happened in those who are being persecuted. And for us, often, because we're on the cruise ship to heaven often, and things are a lot easier, and we don't really have to make stands where we're going to face imprisonment or, or, or torture or pain, a lot of times our walks can be much more surface. Let me ask you a question. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? We just followed you around for a week and videotaped everything you said, everything you did, everything you thought, and then put you on trial and showed the video where they say, oh yeah, that person's a Christian. I see them in the Word. They're a person who's in prayer. I see them, their, their character and the way that they live, not just in the words that they speak. And you know what? They're unashamed of the gospel and they point others to Jesus Christ. They're not perfect. But when they do blow it, I see them repenting. And when they've, when they've hurt someone else, I see them going to that person to make things right. Is that the evidence of our lives? Or are we much more surface than that? Sunday morning, Christians only. If you're waiting to be a, a, a tribulation saint, let me just tell you right now, if you won't stand for him now when persecution is minimal, it's not very likely that you'll stand for him when you'll have to pay for it with your life and more than likely be brutally martyred. Guys, if we can't stand for him now, there's a reason why when I give an opportunity for people to give their life to Christ, I want you to stand up. Why? Because if we can't stand up for him in a room filled with people who are cheering us on, we will never stand up for him out in a world that is against us. Amen? So it's good to make a stand for him. Confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Verse 10. So here are these martyrs who have been slain because they've made a stand for God, and here's what they're saying. And they cried with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. These tribulation saints who've been brutally martyred, these whose lives are considered holy sacrifices to the Lord, when they come into heaven, they cry out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord? Lord, how much longer? You've got to realize that these saints will know exactly what's going on on the earth because they will have just been there. They will have been on the earth during the great tribulation, they will see, and don't be offended by this because this is an accurate description, that all hell has broken loose. Because the world is going to be much like hell. It's going to be a picture of hell. Only difference will be it won't be eternal. There'll still be an opportunity for those who have yet to take the mark of the beast to be saved. But they've been living in that environment, and they're going to cry out to God and say, God, Lord, how much longer before you bring justice? How much longer before you stop those who are brutally torturing and beating and killing the precious saints of God, those who have chosen to follow after you? How much longer, O Lord, are you going to wait? From the perspective of a believer, God's righteous judgment can't come soon enough. But for those who don't know God, because they don't know God, and because of the grace and the mercy of God, he continues to suffer long. Why does he wait? Why does he, you know, we think if I was God, I would put a stop to that. Here are these precious Christians being tortured and beaten and killed. I'm going to just put an immediate stop to that. The reason he allows it to continue is because there are more people yet to be saved. 
Aren't you glad he didn't put a stop to it before you got saved? Amen. Amen? It's the grace of God that makes him suffer long. You think we're upset about it? How do you think God feels about it? He loves us more than we'll ever understand. He hurts more for us than we hurt ourselves. And yet he allows it, one, because through suffering we grow spiritually and it's an opportunity for us to to live lives for him. All things do work together for good for those who trust in God, for those who are called according to his purpose, not my purpose, his purpose. And his purpose might include my suffering or my going through difficulty that he might be glorified. But in the midst of all of this, they're crying out, Lord, how much longer? How long are you going to wait? These saints know just what's going on on the earth. And they're crying out, Lord, please, it's time to put a stop to this. Let this merciless torture and slaughter of the saints come to an end. How much longer will you tolerate this? Guys, here's the reality. It's not an issue of if he's going to tolerate it or if he is going to bring righteous judgment, but when. Will God bring righteous judgment? The answer is yes. And that question is not if, it's when will it happen. How do we know he'll avenge those who have been slain for his sake? How do we know that's even true? Well, because of his character, they call him, he is holy and true. He is holy, that word means sacred, pure, blameless, consecrated. He is holy in both character and in nature. He is holy, he hates sin. He is holy, he must be just. A holy God must judge sin or he's not holy. If he allows sin to go on, then he is condoning sinful behavior. Because he's holy, he cannot and he will not do that. He must righteously judge sin. But not only is he holy, it says there that he is true. The word there in Greek means true to his word, to his promises. He has made promises to bring vengeance and righteous judgment. It says in Genesis 4, and he said, speaking to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. In Numbers, it says, so you shall not pollute the land where you are, for, your, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who has shed it. Only the one who has shed the blood can atone for its actions. The Lord is saying the only way that there can be, this can be atoned for is if the one who shed the blood reaps righteous judgment. And then in Romans, he says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give, give place to wrath, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How many of us, be honest, how many of you have had vengeful thoughts? Raise your hand. How many of you actually like movies about vengeance? Come on, right? Somebody does something to somebody's daughter in the movie and the whole movie is chasing that guy down and you can't wait till he catches him? I mean, that's, our, that's how we respond, right? We want justice, Isn't it amazing how for others, we want justice, but for us, we want mercy. Amen? Right? That guy, justice, me, mercy. (laughs) Right? Aren't you glad that God doesn't leave us in charge? Because you know what? He is a God who offers mercy and grace to every one of us. And only does the vengeance come when the mercy is rejected. When the offering of salvation and the turning away and saying, God, I have no interest in your grace. I'm going to stand on my own two feet. 
Who can stand before the Lord? Not those who stand on their own. He is holy. In his purity, he must judge sin. He is true. He must be faithful to his promises. And what did they say? Avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And again, I want to note something here. The contrast between Jesus and Stephen's earthly cries concerning those who were tortured and murdered and the cries of those martyred saints in heaven. What did Jesus say and what did Stephen say? Both very similar when they were put to death for their faith. They said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or a variation of that. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. They're on earth and they're pleading for mercy for those who are killing them. But now these martyrs are in heaven and they're crying out and saying, Lord, take care of them. How much longer? These martyr tribulation saints' heavenly words concerning those who have tortured and murdered them and are continuing to torture and murder those who are still on the earth is avenge our blood. And while they're crying out for vengeance, I want you to notice that they cry out to the Lord. They say, how long, O Lord? You know, Lord, ultimately it's in your hands. And we're crying out to you, but Lord, we're going to leave it in your hands. And you know what? I don't think there's anything wrong with crying out to God. Lord, I pray that you would bring justice. But Lord, according to your will, not mine. And Lord, you know what? If the Lord is going to show them mercy, so too should we. While they're crying out for vengeance, they're crying out to God, leaving the matter up to him. But what we're seeing here is a shift from a time of mercy to a time of justice. Again, he suffers long, but he won't suffer always. He continues to suffer long for a specific reason because, again, there are more that need to be saved. But we're beginning to see here in the book of Revelation, as the scrolls are being unrolled, as that scroll, that title deed to the earth is being opened up, that we're seeing a shift from the mercy of God to the justice and the judgment of God, where the martyrs are no longer crying out, forgive them, but avenge us. Then it says there in verse 11, Then a white robe was given to each of them. These are the martyred saints. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who had been killed as they were was completed. So he gives them white robes. And basically a white robe is emblematic of purity and innocence and even of triumph. These forgiven and atoned for martyrs have been made righteous, not by their blood, but by the blood of the Lamb. You know, you can be a martyr and still be unrighteous. Because it's only those who are witnesses of and in a relationship with Jesus Christ that will be pure and holy and redeemed. You know, the guys who flew, you know, into the Twin Towers during 9-11, you know, they would be considered martyrs by some and murderers by others. Amen? And guess what? The promise of 70 virgins, not so much. Because they were following a false God. Because we follow the true and living God, we too one day will be clothed in his righteousness in heaven, and we will rule and reign with him forever and ever and ever, even though we don't deserve it. He tells them, rest a little while longer. I mentioned this before. God's making it clear to these martyrs that their sacrifice was an appointment, not an accident. Here's what he's saying. Look, I'm in control. My timing is perfect. I didn't wait too long. I haven't waited long enough yet. Your death was not an accident. It was a divine appointment. It was always my plan. And now here you are in my presence and you will be with me forevermore. 
And you know what, though? I'm not done yet on the earth because it says there the number has yet to be completed. There are still more that we're going to be saved, and that's why God waits. That's the only reason. That's why he's waiting even to this day. The Bible talks about even the rapture of the church. It's when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So I said this a few weeks ago. If you're the last person who needs to be saved, let's get about it. Amen? Let's not be waiting. Let's get saved today and let's head up, head on up to heaven and get out of here. Even in death, even in the death of his people, God is in control. And so too with the trials that we go through. I said it before, but it bears repeating. Whatever difficulty that you're going through right now, be it financial, be it your health, be it a family issue, whatever it might be, God is not blind to it. And he's not up in heaven wringing his hands, going, oh no, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? God knew it was coming. He's allowed it to happen. And if you will let him, he will use it for his glory. When we go through the trials, the question should not be why, it should be what. Not why, Lord, did you let this happen, but Lord, what do you want to teach me through this? God is in control, and he is ever faithful. The Bible says in Psalm 116, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's precious to him. He's not playing a game by allowing people to suffer and die. You know why? We know this for a fact, because he was willing to do it himself. Amen? And if we're to follow him, we need to be willing to lay it on our lives as well. But this also points again to the continued mercy and long-suffering of our Savior, who is waiting for more to be saved. So until the final martyr is killed, until the final tribulation saint is redeemed, those who suffer on the earth for his sake, again, will be rewarded in heaven, but they will have to continue on waiting for God's perfect timing. You know, here's the reality. We don't have to worry about his timing. We just need to be faithful until it's his time. Amen? That's up to him. He knows what he's doing. And we can know the times and the seasons the Bible tells us, and we need to be faithful where we are. We need to trust in his perfect timing. Our Lord is willing that some suffer temporally, that more might be saved for an eternity. Is it worth it for you or I to suffer temporally that others might be saved for an eternity? What's the answer? Absolutely. It's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Oh yeah, suffering not so much. I didn't sign up for that. But that's part of God's plan to mold us into his image and then to use us to be able to minister to others. Second Corinthians chapter one talks about that. He allows us to suffer that we might be comforted by God so that then we may comfort others who suffer the same way. We might be able to share with them. I know exactly how you feel. I know what you've been through. And let me tell you how the Lord brought me through it. And so he allows it and he does it and uses it for his glory. Guys, even when it appears that the enemy is winning, remember that God is in control and he's going to have the last word. Amen? He's in control and he's going to have the last word. Finally, so it says, he who is able to stand, heavenly cry of the martyred saints is avenge us. These are those crying out to God for his righteous judgment. Secondly, the earthly cry out 
those who are rebellious and unrepentant, they don't cry out, avenge us. They cry out, fall out on us and hide us. They're crying out to the mountains to hide them from the wrath of God. Look what it beginning there in verse 12. The earthly cry of the rebellious and unrepentant man. It says, I look when he opened the sixth seal. So the fifth seal is done. The, the focus has been in heaven. Now the focus is going to be back on the earth. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. When the sixth seal is open, it's going to produce a worldwide, worldwide convulsions and catastrophes like man has never seen before. Included in this, in the book of Revelation, are three great earthquakes. And all of nature will be affected, the sun, the moon, the stars, as well as the heavens, the mountains, and the islands. In the Bible... Celestial disturbances are often connected with the coming of the Messiah. In Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah, and Jesus himself all describe such disturbances in connection with the coming of the Messiah. Happened both at his first coming, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but also, of course, it'll be a prelude to his second coming. It says in Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. That the mighty men shall cry out that day as a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. That's pretty direct. He's telling them that judgment is coming and it's going to be a part of the righteous judgment of God and the return of the Messiah. In Joel, it says, The sun and the moon grow dark, the stars diminish their brightness, for the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Who can endure it? When the one who holds the the universe, the Bible talks about God holding the universe in the span of his hand. How great is God? And every time they find out that the universe is bigger, Right? Oh, we just found another galaxy and another thing. And a, right? It was always there. We, did, you know, we, did, we didn't create it. We just found what God had already done. It just shows the greatness of our God and the minuteness of who we are. And he holds it up. And if he ever lets go for a nanosecond, it's all going to come crashing down. People say, oh, it's all held together by gravity. And it, it's, it, it, God uses those properties and those laws, but he's in control of those laws because he created them. Amen? And if he lets go for a second, it's all going to come crashing down. When the one who holds the universe in his hand moves from a place of mercy and long-suffering to a time of, of wrath and righteous judgment, his overwhelming power will be displayed in his wrath. As again, as described in these verses, he's going to bring unparalleled fear into the heart of even the most courageous man. The word there for earthquake means a shaking, a commotion, a tempest, an earthquake. And this is the first of three great earthquakes referred to in the book of Revelation. And again, remember the, the parallel between Matthew 24 and the six seals we talked about last week. In Matthew 24, it says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, there's the deceiver, and shall deceive many. And then you will hear of wars, that's the second seal, and rumors of wars. See thee not be troubled, all these things must come to pass, are not done yet. For nation shall rise against nation, that's more wars, and kingdom against king, kingdom. And there will be famines, that's the third seal, and pestilences and 
earthquakes in diverse places. Again, that's the seal we're talking about now. And he says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. What he's saying is, these six seals, this is just the beginning. There's more coming. Wait till we get to the bowl judgment. It's going to make this look like a picnic. And we might say, why would God... Because God, again, is the God of mercy and grace, and his desire is to see people saved, and he's going to give them an opportunity to do so. But eventually, rebellion and unrighteousness and a refusal to repent must be judged because he is a righteous God. Now, what does this mean when it says, the sun became black as sackcloth of hair? Here's my real, the best answer I can give you. I don't know totally. But I know that John is looking... And he sees the sun turning black. Now, some have said maybe it's from a volcano that spewed ash or from fires and smoke on the earth from the earthquake. and all. Uh, That could be. I don't know. All I know is I don't want to be here when it happens. Amen? It also says not only will the sun turn black again, and that could certainly be smoke in the sky and ash, and again, we're not totally sure, but the moon becomes like blood. How does that happen? It could be, again, atmospheric changes but here's what i find interesting there's a violent earthquake that produces a blackness in the sun and a red moon earthquake black red i don't think that's by chance when jesus died on the cross what happened the earth shook right there was darkness upon the earth for three hours right and through his shed blood You and I were redeemed. To me, what happened on the cross is being pictured again here when he brings his righteous judgment upon those who have rejected the cross. I pray that not anyone in this room would fall into that category. Events are similar when he took our judgment upon himself to now when he pours out his righteous judgment. Verse 13, And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as the fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. So John sees this, and something's falling from the sky and crashing to the earth. Now, I'm not an astronomer, but my understanding is most stars are a lot bigger than our planet. Is that accurate? Okay. So what's falling? Is it meteors? Is it asteroids? Is it satellites? Some have said maybe it's nuclear missiles. He wouldn't know what that looked like. I don't know. But ultimately, stuff is falling to the ground and wreaking havoc upon the earth. And my response is the same. I don't want to be here. Not interested. I'm not interested. Whether, I don't want to be here to know, oh, it was, oh, it was meteors that it was talking about in that verse. <laughs> oh, okay, got that. Let me write that down. I, I'll, I'll be good just to be in heaven and find out later. How about you? Oh, it was nuclear bombs. Could be. It says, as the fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Figs ripe and ready to be picked. The fall is imminent and this mighty wind hits them and they're shaken from their place and they fall to the ground. You know, what a picture here that, you know, it's imminent. And all it takes is just the breath of God to make it happen. This rushing wind comes in and shakes this fig and it drops to the ground. 
Just as the cosmos and all that is in it is held in place by God, the stars, the planets, etc., if he lets it go for even a moment, it's going to come crashing down. Verse 14. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. Every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Are you paying attention? Mountains are moving. Islands, and it says every mountain and every island. This is again why some people think this is going to be nuclear weaponry, but it doesn't have to be. God's going to allow judgment to come where there's going to be so much upheaval in the earth that the earth is not even going to look the same when it's over. Now the good news is before we come back, he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Amen? Because the one that's left is going to be a mess. But here we have God's righteous judgment. This is like a scroll. You know what I thought of? You know, those cartoons where they pull the, the, the window shade down, they let it go, and it rolls up, and it makes all the noise, right? <laughs> right? And, and I just imagine, what does that mean that the sky is going to... I don't know. I don't know. Nobody can know for sure. But again, many have said that that picture would go with nuclear war as well. You know, if the nuclear bombs drop, what would the sky look like? It may look like it's rolling away from all the mushroom clouds and everything that's going. Again, John is, is looking down upon the earth, trying to describe what he sees with his limited understanding. And this is what he sees. And again, I don't know exactly what it will be, but I know that it's not something that we want to be here for. It's a part of God's righteous judgment. It's his wrath pouring out, and I don't want to be here for it. So notice how the people react to this. So all this is happening. You know, mountains are being moved. Islands are being moved. Earthquakes beyond what anybody has seen before. This is heavy-duty stuff. And here's how the people respond in verse 15 and 16. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Who's going to do this? Everybody. The kings of the earth. The great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man. Every person who remains on the planet when his righteous judgment comes will face the wrath of God. It doesn't matter if they're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if they're kings or captains or mighty. None will escape his judgment. It's been said that the most expensive real estate on the planet at that time will be a hole in the ground. How much do you give me for the hole? Everything I have. And they'll want to jump in the hole. You know, what should be happening here, instead of running from God and hiding, they should be running to him and repenting. But they hide from him. And guys, there's people in this room today, you're hiding from God. You're living a life, you, maybe you come to church, and obviously you're here. But in the secret part of your life, you're kind of hiding from God. You've not surrendered to him completely. You're playing church maybe on Sunday and every once in a while. You might even tell people you're a Christian, but you've really never surrendered your life fully to him. Don't let me see the one who's on the throne. Don't let me be confronted by the creator of the universe. God is not a respecter of person. He's not impressed by man's wealth, his position, his title. 
And again, no one will escape the wrath of God. As a righteous and holy judge, he must judge all sin. But here's something I want you to hear. If men and women will not yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, there is no way for them to escape the wrath of God. Let me say that one more time. If men and women will not yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, there is no way for them to escape the wrath wrath of God. So who are these people? Who are these people that even when the righteous judgment is coming, they refuse to repent, and instead of seeking him, they try to hide from him? How futile is that? To crawl under a rock and hide from God like he's not going to find you. God is the best hide-and-go-seek player there ever lived. He will find you. Who are these people? All who have mocked God, who in their arrogance have shaken their fists at God. Comedians who tell jokes about God. Ever heard of some of them? Political groups who are trying to get rid our government of God. Remove him from the public square. You know, want to talk about the separation of church and state. There's going to be no separation of church and state on Judgment Day. Amen? Well, you know, I just I want to keep things secular up here. And uh, yeah, not so much. God's in control and you can't vote him out of office. Amen? And aren't you glad? Kings, princes, celebrities, self-proclaimed atheists, arrogant intellectuals, people of power, position, and prestige, evolutionary scientists, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, insincere Christians will not only attempt to hide from the cataclysmic events of God's wrath, but from God himself. Cover us up. We're going to cry out to the mountains that have been moved by God, hiding from his face. People trying to hide in caves and rocks from the face of God. And notice what else it says there. And what does it say? And the wrath of the Lamb. Imagine wanting to hide from the Lamb of God. And I said this once before. You've got to do a lot to make a lamb mad. Amen? I mean, lamb. Lambs are the most docile, peaceful animals. What do you have to do to make a lamb? I don't know. I've never seen one mad. I don't know what you do. But you know what? Creation is going to stay in a state of rebellion and a state of rejection of the Lamb of God so long that they're finally going to provoke his anger and his righteous judgment. It seems like a paradox. Wrath and lamb. We're so accustomed to emphasizing the meekness and gentleness of Christ that we forget his holiness and justice. It's the same God of love and grace and mercy. He is a God of love and grace and mercy, but he's also a God of holiness and justice and righteous judgment. The same Jesus who said, let the little children come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven is the same Jesus who made a whip of cords and drove the money changers out of the temple, right? Why? Because he is a God of love and grace and mercy. And he is a God who is long-suffering, but while he suffers long, he won't suffer always, and he will bring righteous judgment. That's the God that we serve. I want you to notice, God speaks of the wrath of God. God's wrath is not like a, a child's temper tantrum, right? When God, God's wrath is not him, okay, I'll show you. That's not God. That's not how our God is, amen? And it's not like an out-of-control parent who flies off the handle, okay, you're restricted for life, that's it, right? You're never going to eat again. Go to your room for the next 30 years. You know, that's the wrath of a parent sometimes, right? But the wrath of God is a holy and consistent reaction to that which is contrary to the nature and will of God. 
It is evidence of his holy love for all that is right and his holy hatred for all that is evil. So sadly, as the lamb pours out his righteous judgment, they hide from him in fear. Remember, what did Adam and Eve do when when they sinned? They hid. And isn't that what our nature is? We want to hide. And you know what? Can I tell you? That will stunt our spiritual growth if when we are in sin, we hide from God. He already sees and he already knows. So why are you trying to hide? Who's done that besides me? Raise your hand. You're blowing it and you go, oh, well, let me just act like that didn't happen. God knows it did. Amen. Isn't it better to bring it to him and be transparent before him and say, Lord, you already know this. I need your help. Please forgive me. Please restore me. The enemy wants you to run and hide, and that's what Adam and Eve did. They are proof that judgment by itself, these things, does not change the heart of man. Judgments come upon the earth, and instead of them running to God, they run from him. They not only seek to hide from God, but they're going to blaspheme him as well. And again, as I said before, they're going to be hiding in caves and in holes. And again, it takes a lot to to anger our God. But there's a time coming when it's going to happen. Finally, last verse. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who can stand justified before the Lamb of God, the righteous judge? Well, on that day on the earth, most of them, because they are not repenting, if not all of them, will not be able to stand. None of them will be able to stand. No king no captain, no, no you know, CEO of a great company can't stand. But you know who can stand? Those who have been redeemed and forgiven and justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It says in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into his grace, in which we stand. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you stand. 1 Peter says, testifying that this is true grace of God in which you stand. The believer can stand in the face of the great wrath of God because Jesus Christ already bore your wrath on your behalf. He took your punishment so that you might enjoy his reward. We can stand in the day of righteous judgment because the judgment has already been taken for us by our Savior. So the last question as we close in prayer, can you stand before the Lord this morning? You can't if you're trying to stand in your own good works, in your own righteousness, based on your behavior. The truth is you can't stand. But you can stand if you allow Jesus Christ to take your sin, for him to take the wrath that you deserve upon himself to, re, to take your sin that you might be redeemed, that you might be forgiven. The reason I can stand before God is because Jesus Christ stands with me and with you. Amen? We're with him. That's why we can stand. Let's close the word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you and we praise you that you're a God who is gracious and merciful that you desire that none should perish, no, not one. That, Lord, this righteous judgment is not because you're an unloving God, but because we're unrepentant people. Lord, you would desire that every person in this room would escape the wrath that is to come. 
that they would be born again, spend eternity with you in heaven. Lord, I pray if there's even one person here that doesn't know you, that right now by your Holy Spirit, you would soften their heart to respond to this opportunity to surrender their lives to you. So as everyone is praying, if you're here this morning, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. The Bible says if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Not asking you to join a church or an organization, but just recognize your sin and confess openly your need for a Savior. And the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. And it's not a 12-step program or a 50-step program. It's a one-step program. Jesus Christ is crucified and risen from the dead, and you're born again, and you're going to heaven. If your desire this morning to know for sure that you're going to heaven, to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, and you want to pray that prayer, I just want you to stand up right where you are so I can pray with you. Anybody at all. Today's the day of salvation. Don't let the enemy win. God bless you, brother. Anybody else? Anybody else? If you can't confess them in here, you won't be able to confess them in the world. Anybody else? Let's pray together. And this man who's standing up, I just pray you pray this with me out loud. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me, to make me a new creation in Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is God and that he died in my place. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. I say it every time, but it bears repeating. The Bible says when one person is saved on earth that all the angels in heaven rejoice. So there's a party in heaven. We ought to have one in here right now. Let's stand up and worship the Lord. Amen.